Theology and Apologetics with Thomas Fretwell. Okay, good morning everyone. How's everyone doing, okay? Okay, good. I'm going to be honest with you. We're going to hit some heavy material for a Monday morning today. There we go. Well um, but this will be a slightly different talk than what I would usually sort of give to a, a Christian group um, in the fact that obviously last night we looked at the foundation about the Word of God uh, and stated that that's how we have to start when we're understanding human identity. This morning we are going to kind of do the opposite and look at what happens when you start without the Word of God and what people who don't have the Word of God as their foundation end up doing to the concept of human identity. So in one way there's not going to be huge amounts of Bible if you see what I mean um, but obviously if you understand this talk in the kind of larger narrative of yesterday's and the ones that we'll be doing after this, it'll make perfect sense for you. So let's open in prayer and we'll get into this. Dear Father, we thank you, Lord, for this morning. And Lord, I want to pray that as we, we touch on these issues today, I still pray, Lord, that you would get all the glory. Lord, I just pray that you will give us ears to hear what your spirit is saying to the churches. Give us a mind to understand, Lord, and a heart to obey. In Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. So this is why, what does it mean to be human? And specifically, we're looking at the question of why does that matter today? You know, so what happens if you get this wrong? Um, like I said, last night we laid our foundation and today we're moving on. This, this will be a little bit more philosophical by nature. Um, we're going to look at some of the problems that have arisen in history when man dehumanizes one another. What does it mean to be human? Now this is an old question, pr pretty much as old as time itself. I want to start by reading Psalm 8 for us. If, you, if you've got a Bible, please turn with me to Psalm 8. We'll read this psalm as we get into this, so we've, we've got the Word of God in our hearts still. This is a psalm of David, Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, who have, who have displayed your splendor above the heavens. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him, and the son of man that you care for him? <clears throat> Yet you have made him a little lower than God, and you crown him with glory and majesty, and you make him to rule over the works of your hand. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And it's verse 4 that I want to draw your attention to there. I almost see David asking this same question. What is man that you are mindful of him? Obviously he's asking it within a theistic context to the God of Israel. What is man that you are mindful of him? This is basically the same question. David, I imagine him sort of sitting out under the stars <laughs> at this stage as a shepherd, contemplating as he looks up at the universe, this, this wonderful scene of heaven and just saying, you know, why do you care? What is man? Who, who are we? Why do you care about us? Do we have a grand purpose? This is questions we all ask ourselves. Is there any end game towards which our lives are heading? Does anything we do have any real lasting significance? Or are we simply here to live out a certain number of days and then we are gone? You see, you can go online today. You can Google what does it mean to be human and you'll come up with a list of the top universities, I know Oxford University in England just had a conference you know, a few months back on this very topic. What does it mean to be human? They fly in the world's leading academics, philosophers, biologists, psychologists, sociologists, 
very rarely a theologian, but people are asking this question. However, when you look and you read and you research what these people are saying, one thing that you'll find is that there is really no consistent answer. Now, I find this funny. It seems odd if humans have been on this planet for so long that we still can't even answer the fundamental question of what we are. And we think often that we're so smart. Now, the Smithsonian Museum, usually I have to explain what that is when I mention this in England. I'm sure you lot all know the Smithsonian, yeah? Okay, good. They have a natural history museum and they have a specific area, the human origins, and they have a whole website, a whole unique website for the human origins website. Um, and they have a whole section looking at this question, what does it mean to be human? And on this website, they have a page where people can submit their answers to this question. It's very interesting to just sit there and read a, a sampling of people's opinions. So I'm going to just, I've pulled out about four or five of these. Um, I'll read them to you. This is Josh from California. He says, to be human means to evolve and become a better society. It also means we have to figure out the natural world. Another one, what it means to be human? I think to be human is to stand up for what is right and do the right thing. Smuggling moral objective values to that question. Another one, to be able to contemplate and come to terms with our mortality as well as our place in the universe. You see, we'll go through and show why some of these <laughs> don't really make much sense. He's assuming we have a place in the universe. Where does that place come from? To create our own meaning in a meaningless world. Being a human, being an animal, a living thing in general means nothing. And the final one, I love this one. Is, I don't know what it means to be human. I simply just don't know. <laughs> I mean, why would you go online and actually bother to type that in? That's just beyond, it's beyond me. But I think it sort of expresses, expresses uh, the, you know, this was on the Smithsonian website. I was expecting slightly more, I'll be honest with you, but this was it. They just don't know. There is no consistent answer. And obviously, I hope you understand now from last night's talk, the reason for this is that because they have no foundation, no higher authority in this world, and they are left to sort of scramble around, and we're going to look at some of the things that they, that they give us. Now, you also probably noticed from those answers, just a very brief sampling, they don't actually answer the question. They simply sort of list activities that they think people should be doing and thus, your activity sort of becomes your meaning. There's actually no inherent meaning to humanity itself. Meaning seems to be established by things that you do, by activities that you have. And this is a big problem if that's what you're going to really hang meaning on. A young woman once wrote to Albert Einstein, asking him why we are alive. You can read about this in, in Einstein's letters. We have many of them published. His answer, he said this to her, Quote, the question why in the human sphere is easy to answer. To create satisfaction for ourselves and for other people. In the extra human sphere, the question has no meaning. Also, belief in God is no way out, for in this case you may ask, why God? Now, I'll be honest, I was very disappointed with that answer from Albert Einstein. To create satisfaction for ourselves, almost like sort of hedonism, and for other people. Now, outside of that, the question has no meaning. 
And then he also raises, I find it interesting that he, he sort of preempts the question about God. He brings God into the equation here. Obviously, Einstein was not a believer in God in the sense that we would understand that term. But he introduces the question of God. And I find this interesting because it's very clear that the biggest divide in the search for answers really comes from those who have what we would call a theistic worldview and those who don't. That is, those who believe that there is a God, a transcendent power, whatever you want to call it. The issue of God is pivotal to the issue of humanity. We have to understand that. Even if you don't believe in God, you'll see how this affects the question and ultimately the actions of people. And that's what I want to kind of emphasize why this, this is not just a theoretical subject that we can sit about in a philosophy class talking about. This has real consequences in the world. We see it today all over the place. We'll talk about some of these issues. You see, most people... Does anyone remember Ask Jeeves? Yeah. You do remember Ask Jeeves. Okay, so it was like a search, before Google took over the world, it was like a search engine. And you, the idea is it was a little butler, I think, and you would go online and you would type in a question and Jeeves would spit out the answers to you. I think it still exists, just called Jeeves today. I don't exactly know what it does, but uh, this is what it used to be. And Ask Jeeves, they, they released, I think in 2008, when they, when they got brought up by someone, a list of their top 10 unanswerable questions. And this was based on sort of 1.1 billion questions that they'd had um, typed into their search engine. The number one question that they had is these list of unanswerable questions. So this means the most asked question that Jeeves got asked was, what is the meaning of life? What is the meaning of life? Everyone wants to know that question. But more interestingly, in light of what Einstein said, the way he raises God in the equation, the second question after that was, does God exist? What is the meaning of life, and does God exist? <laughs> and then almost comically, the third question was, do blondes have more fun? <laughs> you can see the progression in the mind. Is there a meaning? Is God around? Then I can do what I want. <laughs> but what is the meaning of life, and does God exist? These two questions are so intimately connected. The question of God is actually related to every area of our existence, I would say. You see, most people long for a sense of purpose, and it's fairly reasonable to assume that if God exists and he created us, then there must be some ultimate meaning to the universe. He would have created us for a purpose. That the logic from that follows. Again, you don't need to be a believer. You can see how that follows. The simpler, probably the sort of the simplest summary of this is found in the, the Westminster Catechism. It's an old, an old kind of church creed document. It says this, what is the chief end of man? What is our main purpose? And it answers, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And as Christians, we, you know, we would affirm that. We would share that if God did create us, he had a purpose for us, and his purposes are for us to enjoy him and to bring him glory, ultimately. Now, without God, now we would call this, whether you want to call it naturalism, whatever, whatever name you apply to that, a view that does not have God in the universe, it's very hard to find objective meaning to existence. And when I say objective meaning, I mean something that is independent of our thoughts or actions. Inherent meaning. You see by the answers to those questions, people get meaning from what they do in the world, but there are some people that cannot do the things that other people do. So if you're going to use that standard, you have to say that some people's lives will be more meaningful than others. You know, people who, who maybe have disabilities cannot do some things that other people can. On that standard, you just, it just... You know, it unravels the glory of what human dignity is. But that's where they have to go. 
Let me read you a very famous quote by an atheist called Bertrand Russell from the past generation. He says this, that man is the product of causes which had no provision of the end they were achieving. His origin, his growth, his hopes, his fears, his loves and his beliefs are but the outcome of an accidental collocation of atoms. No fire, no heroism, no intensity of thought and feeling can preserve an individual life beyond the grave. That all the labours of all the ages, all the devotion, all the inspiration, all the noonday brightness of human genius are destined to extinction in the vast death of the solar system. And only within the scaffolding of these truths, only on the firm foundation of unyielding despair, can the soul's habitation be safely built. That's naturalism. Very honest statement there from an atheist. Now, of course, many of us living in this world, we don't really analyse these problems on such a philosophical level necessarily. Uh, we're sort of content to maybe be like David and just look up at the stars, look around us, um, and we have that almost intuitive notion that there must be more to this. There must be a reason behind all this sort of thing. Where did this come from? Who's responsible for it? These are just natural questions that we get when we look about the world. Um, you may notice if you've ever, I mean, you, you, you know, I've been looking at the sunsets you've got here, and when the sky goes pink and you've got the palm trees and you're looking at it, if you've ever been with some people, particularly people who don't know the Lord, They'll start using terms like it's a work of art or it's a masterpiece. You might have heard that sort of thing. Um, they'll maybe compliment Mother Nature. You ever heard that one come? Mother Nature. Now, I always feel it always makes me sort of chuckle this because kind of by personifying nature, it's almost uh, a way to sort of <laughs> talk about the beauty of the world yet avoid the conclusion that there must be a cause for such beauty. You know, when you talk about masterpieces, you're talking about art, but yet you have to deny the artist. And on and on these things go. Although many deny it, it is very logical to make this connection and have these feelings when we look at the creation around us. David did that when he looked up into the heavens. We call it natural revelation. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the earth. This is natural revelation. In the New Testament, we find a very similar teaching in Romans 1, 19 to 20. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so that they are out, so they are without excuse. I'm sure many of you can appreciate the fact that sometimes looking up into the heavens is quite an awe-inspiring act. And it does make you think about God and big questions of existence. There was an illustration, it was one of my favourite ones, you probably heard it, I've heard a lot of preachers use it, but uh, it always kind of speaks to me. It occurred in 1968 with the crew of Apollo 8. Now, Apollo 8 was sort of the first uh, manned thing, uh, spacecraft to go around the dark side of the moon. So th uh, that was the famous, there's a famous picture called the Earthrise picture, which is when they, they came around the back of the Earth and they actually saw the moon rising on that side. It's a very famous picture. You guys actually have a, one, a, a postal stamp to commemorate this event. Uh, I have one stuck in my Bible by, by this psalm, Psalm 19. You see, if you can imagine the scene, these astronauts were the first people ever to lay eyes on a scene of the Earth that until that moment had been reserved for God alone. They saw the globe appear over the horizon of the moon that beautiful blue marble suspended in the black canvas of space, surrounded by nothing but stars. 
You see, we ask ourselves what words could be found to describe this awe-inspiring moment. You see, was it a declaration that everything is meaningless? Was it a declaration that nothing eh, exists, everything is just a random collocation of atoms, a product of divine or random chance, I should say? No. The only words that were fit for such a moment were, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You can go on YouTube and you can listen to this recording. See, the astronauts planned uh, that when they, when they did this, that they would read from the book of Genesis as they saw this scene. And they broadcast it down to the earth and it was actually broadcast on Christmas Eve. And I love it because it's sort of a touch of divine ir irony here. As millions on the earth were preparing to celebrate the birth of Christ in a manger. And for many people that's just a sort of a helpless infant who, who don't really understand who that was in the manger. God is sort of reminding them by this event, who you're worshipping down there is the same one that created all of this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You see, these are two different starting points. And from these two starting points, we come up with very different perspectives on humanity. And this is important. Like I said, if you start with the wrong perspective on humanity, you can end up very far from the truth. And when you go away from the truth, that can end up having some very tragic consequences. In the UK, there's a, there was a, or in Europe actually, Swedish, there was a famous DJ called DJ Avicii. He's a house DJ. I don't know if you have house music over here. It's, it's big on the continent, but it, uh, you might have it, house. His, name, his real name was Tim Bergling. Just in April this year, he took his own life. He was, he was 28. He was on tour. He was a you know, Grammy-nominated artist. Uh, he didn't really do drugs, he, he stayed away from that scene in the music industry. And on tour one day he went up to his hotel room, smashed a bottle, got the glass, slit his wrist and he bled out and died. It's tragic. Now in the statement put out by his family, which came out in the public press, they said this, Our beloved Tim was a seeker, a fragile artistic soul searching for answers to existential questions. He struggled with thoughts about meaning, about life, and about happiness. He could not go on any longer. He wanted to find peace. Now, it grieves me when I read about young people taking their lives like that, particularly ones that are searching for meaning and life and happiness, yet ones who have probably grown up in a culture where the very thing, the very source where he can find all of those things has been denied to them and ridiculed in that same culture. Now, in the UK, we have, we have a mental health crisis in the UK. Suicide rates are skyrocketing. I'd imagine it's probably similar over here. And I look at people trying to come up with solutions for this. You know, we have governments appointing people to manage these things. They're coming up with figures and programs. We have a thing in the UK called mindfulness right now. Do you have that over here, mindfulness? What this basically is, is something that they're trying to teach young people in schools to help them deal with anger and pain and, and, and depression and all these sorts of things. And what it basically is, is New Age meditation secularized? So New Age meditation would be obviously, you know, sitting and making noises and physical postures and all this sort of thing. Mindfulness is breathing techniques. So they teach you how to <sighs> take it, and it's, it's basically, they obviously remove any reference to God, because you can't do that in the schools, but this is basically what they're teaching. And it's absolutely pathetic, really, quite frankly, to watch. They're spending millions of pounds on this. At the same, in the very same breath, they'll deny people access to the Word of God in these schools. And they wonder why, this is what I'm talking about, it's confusion when you stray from the Word of God. DJ Avicii, he wanted meaning, life, purpose and happiness. 
And the big tragedy about something like this is that the Bible has always had answers to these questions. In John 10.10, what did Jesus say? The thief comes only to destroy, to kill and destroy. I'd say the, the world, the culture is the thief in this scenario. He says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Psalm 16, you will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy, in your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Romans 5.1, therefore having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Isaiah 26 verse 3, you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. And we could, you know, you all know, we could multiply verses to that effect. You see, all these things are ultimately connected to the issue of identity. Who we are, what we should do, where we're going. All these things come into these issues. And these are our two starting points. You are either created by God or you are not, basically. It's a slight oversimplification, but in the culture, these are really the two views. Theistic views or non-theistic views. Now, obviously, today, most people obviously scoff at the concept of biblical creation or even the fact that we can say humanity is created by God in any unique way. They scoff at the idea that Christianity or the Bible has anything unique to say on these issues. That's why at all these top conferences, you'll be hard-pressed to find a Christian theologian. Or if they do invite a theologian, he's usually someone who has long abandoned the authority of the scripture. And his voice is just another waffle in the sort of cacophony of conflicting opinions. We need someone to stand up and speak the truth of the word of God. You see, we should not be, a scare, not be scared of scoffing. People will scoff at us with what we say. But what we need to do is when they scoff, we know that we need to speak louder. The louder they scoff, the louder we speak, because it's only truth that's going to bring clarity into these situations. And we don't need to do that, really, for the people who are scoffing at us. We do that for people like DJ Avicii. You know, young men who need answers. Young men who need Jesus Christ in their life. That's why we do these things. Now, if you reject God, generally most people, you have to sort of, you know, you reject God, you find something to take that place. And probably the main view in our culture today would be what we call GTE, the general theory of evolution. Now this is a, you know, this, again, people play word games with this term, let me define it for you. This is a, from a, a, you know, an academic textbook by an evolutionist, G.A. Kirkup. It says, all the living forms in the world have arisen from a single source which itself came from an inorganic form. That's the most basic definition of what we mean by evolution. All living forms in the world have arisen from a single source which itself came from an inorganic form. Life from non-life. Now, going back to the Smithsonian Museum of Natural History on their Human Origins website, if you go on their homepage, the big kind of banner graphic that they have is obviously a picture of a, a fossilized uh, skull, and they have, they have this, this little ca catch line. Part of what, we what it means to be human is how we became human. Part of what it means to be human is how we became human, and I'd probably agree with that. That's true. Obviously, being the Smithsonian Institute, they're going to give you a very specific... Uh, teaching on how we became human. You see, what I want to look at is what, what does such a belief, what does evolutionary theory do to the question of human identity and meaning? You see, in this view, humanity is nothing more than a highly evolved primate. Our existence is a mere accident, the outcome of time, chance, and natural selection. In this view, mankind holds no privileged position in the universe. Anything about human exceptionalism, as it's often called, is denied categorically. The late Stephen Jay Gould, leading a paleontologist, he writes this, Humans are a tiny and accidental evolutionary twig, 
a little mammalian afterthought with a curious evolutionary invention called the human brain. Evolutionary biologist Jerry Coyne, you probably know him, he's a terribly anti-Christian. He says this, There is no special purpose to your life, no more extrinsic purpose than a squirrel or an armadillo. Ethicist Peter Singer, who's well known for bemoaning the sort of special status that we afford mankind, he wrote a book called Unsanctifying Human Life. He, he teaches at Princeton, by the way, Peter Singer, if you don't know. He says this, All we are doing is catching up with Darwin. He showed in the 19th century that we are simply animals. Now, we could go on with quotes like this. This is ultimately one explanation, a secular explanation, of what humanity is. But you need to go a step further. If you were to accept that view, what are the consequences from that view? And this is the disconnect that I find most people are unwilling to do. They're happy to make assertions, but they're unwilling to follow th them through to their logical conclusion. And when people do follow them through to their logical conclusion, they object to that. But yet they still are intent on pushing people their answers. We're going to see what happens when you follow some of these things through to their logical conclusion. Uh, Bill Provine, again, uh, died recently, but a leading evolutionary, evolutionist. He was very honest in some of his writings. He says this, Let me summarise what my views on what modern evolutionary biology tells us loud and clear. He says, There are no gods, no purposes, no goal-directed forces of any kind. There's no life after death. When I die, I am absolutely certain I'm going to be dead. There is no ultimate foundation for ethics. Note that, that's very important. No ultimate foundation for ethics. No ultimate meaning to life and no free will for humans either. Bill Provine, one of the leading evolutionists of our day. You see, there are many times in history that the belief that man is nothing more than an animal has led to the dignity of mankind being erased by ourselves. And this is directly because of an incorrect view of human identity. You see, in the 19th century, the belief that we evolved from animals led to the inevitable theory that some races were more evolved than others. If any of you are familiar with the beginnings of evolutionary theory in a historical sense, you will understand a lot of this. Let me read to you. See, evolution did not create racism, but it has definitely contributed to it. There's absolutely no doubt about it. Even again, I'll read you Stephen Jay Gould. He says this, quote, Biological arguments for racism may have been common before 1859, that's Origin of Species publication date. He says, but they increased by orders of magnitude following the acceptance of evolutionary theory. Now, I find this very interesting because in a, in a culture where everything is so highly politicised right now, um, you, you know, in, in the UK, people get fired for making wrong comments and it, any sort of racism, it, you know, we have a big scandal going through with one of our major political parties, that our li the leader's kind of a, a fairly radical anti-Semite. Um, he was caught recently uh, laying a, a, a wreath at a ceremony to honour the, uh, the Palestinian terrorist who, who killed the Israeli athletes of Black September in the 70s. Um, and he denied it when he came back, obviously, to the UK. And then someone released a video of him, and it was all, it's, all a bit, it's all sort of a big scandal. But evolution still seems to get a free pass. Because it's so fundamental, it's the only other option if you don't, you know, you take away evolution, you have to sort of posit God. And people are so, so against trying to posit God that they will hold on to evolution, even if it has these consequences. They just sort of get brushed under the carpet. 1859, Origin of Species was published. Now, in the Origin of Species, Darwin didn't really talk about humanity. It was 
book of natural, theo- natural history to deal with you know, the animal kingdom. But he did later write a book in 1871 called The Descent of Man. Is anyone familiar with that book? Descent of Man. Okay, people don't talk about it much today. Um, they talk about the origin of species, but in 1871 he wrote a book called The Descent of Man. And in this book he directly applied evolutionary theory to humanity. And it is in this book that we first see the concept of lower and higher races being popularized. This is Charles Darwin. Let me read you a quote from The Descent of Man. He says, The sole object of this work is to consider, firstly, whether man, like every other species, is descended from some pre-existing form, and secondly, the manner of his development, and thirdly, listen to this, the value of the differences between the so-called races of men. This is where the idea of lesser and higher races came from. It's just a historical fact. However, you know, this didn't just stay in the classroom. What Darwin started in The Descent of Man was just the beginning. It spread out into the world. There was a man named Herbert Spencer. If you haven't heard that name, you probably won't get taught it in schools, but he was a prominent disciple of Darwin, and he is the one who actually coined the term survival of the fittest. You've all heard that term. It's associated with evolutionary theory, survival of the fittest. That was Herbert Spencer, actually, not Darwin, who came up with that term. And he radically applied the principles of Darwinianism to human society, and he became what is known the father of social Darwinism. Social Darwinism is obviously evolution for humans, basically. About the same time as this, there was a flourishing pseudoscientific field known as eugenics. Now, eugenics is a sort of an attempt to f- improve the physical and mental characteristics of the human race by effectively culling people that are deemed unfit. Uh, in the sort of the 19th century, this was forced sterilization. Um, and things like all sorts of horrible things that were going on under the term eugenics. However, amazingly, it was none other than Charles Darwin's cousin, a man named Francis Galton, who pioneered this movement, and he coined the term eugenics in 1883. So it really was a family business. Social Darwinism, eugenics, and Nazi Germany. Now, we're going down this way. You might think, why am I telling you all about this? Because I want you to understand This all came from a wrong understanding of humanity in the very beginning. The Darwinian revolution spread rapidly throughout Germany, due in part to men like Ernst Haeckel. He's very well known for some of his doctored embryo drawings that are still taught in many biology textbooks today. He was a highly respected zoology professor, but he again took the principles of Darwinian evolution and applied them to humanity. He believed that you could judge people. Um, Certain races, as he called them, of people were to have different values assigned to their lives. And he, he, did this sci- you know, he gave it scientific justification. It's widely acknowledged that his evolutionary racism contributed to the rise of Nazi- Nazism in Germany. He was basically the scientist of the Nazis. And that's obviously, we know, that's one of the most vile periods in human history. But much of it was based on the view that some races are different to others. Now, <laughs> you see, that's the end result. I'm not going to go into the things that happened. I'm sure many of you know them. But it all came from a wrong starting point of humanity. And this is why this issue is so serious. Listen to the words of Viktor Frankl. He was a leading neurologist, psychiatrist. He survived the Holocaust. He was in three different concentration camps. He lost every member of his family to that evil. He, he became very famous uh, psychiatrist afterwards. He wrote a book, and in that he said this. He said, if we present man with a concept of man which is not true, we may well corrupt him. 
When we present man as an automaton of reflexes, as a mind machine, a bundle of instincts, as a pawn of drives and reactions, a mere product of instinct, hereditary and environment, we feel, feed the nihilism to which modern man is in any case prone. If we present man with a concept of man which is not true, we may well corrupt him. That's what I really want you to take away from, from this particular talk. Because most people that you meet are being presented a concept of man that is not true. And it will corrupt them. And you are seeing that in our culture today. It plays out in many, many different ways. In big global scale like we saw with the Holocaust and in, in smaller scales like we see with a young man taking his life in his hotel room. It all comes from these issues. Continue with this quote. He said, Viktor Frankl says, I became equated with this last stage of corruption in my second concentration camp, Auschwitz. The gas chambers of Auschwitz were the ultimate consequence of the theory that man is nothing more than the product of hereditary and environment, or as the Nazis like to say, of blood and soil. I am absolutely convinced that the gas chambers of Auschwitz, Treblinka and Majdanek were ultimately prepared not in some ministry or other in Berlin, but rather at the desks and in the lecture halls of nihilistic scientists and philosophers. Do you understand what he's saying there? that these things were not conceived by the Ministry of Defence, by the people who were fighting the battle. These things, the foundation was laid for what happened years earlier in the classroom. You see, what's in the universities in one generation is in the populace in the next generation. And that's why we should be very concerned about what is being taught in our universities. Now, you're probably the same. I know all of the top universities in the UK were started as divinity schools by Christians for Christian purposes. But at some point in our history, we retreated into our sort of evangelical bubbles and we gave away the universities. And what is being taught in those universities now? I can guarantee you a concept of man, which is not true, is being taught, being taught rather, and it is corrupting people. Now these are very big issues. They can manifest in small ways or big ways. But telling a generation of people that they're nothing but meaningless accidents, that there's no purpose to their lives, leaves them scrambling around seeking identity from the culture, from the world, from social media, from Twitter, wherever people get their information from these days, all the time denying them access to the very real source where they'll find answers to these. Now this is an opportunity for the church. You see, we, we need to sort of understand, you know, we're, we're so often told people don't want to hear about religion. You know, we go out street witnessing a lot in the UK and it's, it's tough ground out there. And one of the, the main things that you off, you know, people try and, oh, I don't like, people don't want to hear it when, you're, when they're walking on the street. People need to hear it. Okay, they, this is the, we are the, the only people with a voice that can present this other option. You see, the church, we are a peculiar people. We are called out in this world to be different. That means everything that we have to say to people is different. It's going to confront the culture. But we stand, like I said last night, on the fact that what we are saying is true. And we have it under the authority of Jesus Christ to say that. And therefore, when we're talking about something as intimate as humanity that affects all of us, we can stand firm that we have a better explanation of humanity than they do. And we need to speak up. It's a time for us to raise our voices. It's a huge opportunity for the church at this time. Now, evolution obviously is one view that is huge in the culture. Now, for, for other people, they get their identity from the people around them, from uh, other people's perceptions about them. They use that as the basis of their identity. And it's very easy to fall into this trap. We often identify with the things that we do, don't we? With our jobs, our careers. Some people identify with their social group or their community group 
or the, you know, the community that they're a part of. It's very easy to do that. You remember the, uh, the fairy tale Snow White? You remember the, the Wicked Queen? And she'd go up to the mirror and she'd mirror mirror on the wall who was the fairest of, of them all. And the mirror would then speak back to her and tell her that you're the fairest of them all until one day the mirror said that you're, you know, you're good but not as good as Snow White and then thus starts the whole story. I like that picture. In the book I do a whole illustration on this but because we all have, we're all kind of like the Queen in some way, I'm, I'm afraid. We all have these mirrors that we use in order to affirm us, in order to teach us, to tell us um, <laughs> things about ourselves and about our identity. And I would say it's all too easy now because most of us carry these little mirrors around with us in our pockets. These little smartphones that we have. And again, I'm not, I'm not going to rant at you about technology. I love technology in many ways. But make no mistake, these mirrors do speak to us. And they, sp they are speaking to a younger generation particularly, even younger than, than you, guy, you guys here. Um, I deal with it all the time at home. Now, it's not about the phone. It's not about technology per se. It's about the ideologies that are coming through these phones. The technology is just technology. You see, if what's happening with these phones or the, the worldview that is being imbibed by people is causing people to sin, is causing people to have a wrong understanding, it's, it's sort of appealing to that natural propensity that we have within us to self. And this is a big problem. Because the more we focus on self, the more depressed we're going to get, I can guarantee it. This is one of the reasons why Jesus continually commanded us to deny ourselves. Because in us is <laughs> no good thing. We want to look to someone else. Now, I found this interesting when I read a lot of reports, you know, about all the links between depression and, and screen addiction and all these sorts of things. As I read sort of these, these psychologists, and there's one thing that was very interesting to me. These, you know, although phones are new, this whole issue is nothing new. There's a famous story in Greek mythology of a man named Narcissus. Uh, you may recognize that word. It's where we get our term narcissistic from, narcissism. Sort of a, a, an inflated view of self, basically. Someone who is obsessed with themselves. This comes from Greek mythology. You see, in the story, Narcissus was celebrated for his beauty. And he had many admirers, who you could say followers, for that. And he eventually fell in love with his own image. As he saw it reflected in a pool. And after gazing endlessly at his reflection... His love turned to despair, and remorse overtook him, because he couldn't live up to his own standard of perfection, and eventually, Narcissus took his own life. Now, if I just honestly see the parallels in culture to some of the issues that I read about all the time. You see, like Narcissus, this obsession to meet an unattainable standard leaves many people insecure, empty, broken, and constantly seeking affirmation from others. And unfortunately, that will never work. What is the answer to this? I would say we need to point people to a different mirror. We need to make sure that we're looking at a mirror that will show us a true image of who we are, but also a mirror that will reflect someone else. A mirror that will show people the reflection of Jesus Christ. And I believe, as I said last night, we have such a mirror. In the book of James, the Bible is actually compared to a mirror. James 1, 22. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. He looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But one who looks at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed 
in his doing. Quite simply, the answers, again, are to be found in the word of God. And it's our calling to take the word of God to the nations. In the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon writes these words, He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has put eternity into man's hearts, so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. He has put eternity in man's hearts. And this is really the key to understanding what we're here for. You see, we were specifically intended to find our ultimate meaning and fulfillment by living in accord with what we were designed for. And that is quite simply to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Everything else is a lie. We know that. The culture doesn't know that. And that's part of the ministry of reconciliation that we have. Now, these are big issues. Tonight, we're going to actually turn now to the mirror of Scripture and we're going to look at what it means to be created in the image of God and some of the things that we can learn that are common to all of humanity. And then after that, we'll look at some of the issues that being in in Christ changes for your identity. And then on the final talk, we're going to talk about what actually that means for our meaning and our purpose. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this time. And Lord, I pray that although these things are, are heavy, Lord, that they would have an impact in our lives. They would inspire and encourage us, Lord. And also make us thankful for everything that you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. For more resources, please go to thomasfretwell.com.